Herbalists, Heather Irvine here, and this is part two in a series. I am giving a four-hour pre-conference intensive later this week, and I recorded uh, part one as a practice on phenols and or phenolic compounds of medicinal plants. Of course, you can't include all of them, but um, you know, sort of a progression through many types, some relevance, some context, some characterization. And this little portion will be about uh, terpenes or terpenoids. And so similarly, we'll go from some real um, small, simple ones up through some of the most relevant groups for medicinal plants for, let's say, a... Um, you know, herbal learner or someone who may have come to this um, with interest in medicinal plants from maybe a medium level um, or hoping to sort of see some themes tied together. So let's get started. This is the terpenoids portion. I expect this will last maybe around an hour. Um, so terpenoids are defined by having, uh, containing the isoprene unit. So what is that? Um, it is worth looking at some visuals or looking up some visuals as you go if you aren't familiar with um, these sort of foundational parts. Um, but essentially it includes some, a system of conjugated pi bonds, if you have re can recognize that term from organic chemistry. And if you can't, um, I would maybe just suggest that it is a very, very common um, structural unit in organic molecules and that it contributes um, a good uh, balance or combination of some stability as well as some ability to uh, change format, interact with and or perhaps bond with or exchange with other biomolecules. Um, so the this particular sort of system or arrangement of electron sharing is both um, somewhat stable but also can do some interactions. And so it's a really ubiquitous uh, building block of organic molecules and biomolecules. So some terms that kind of go along with this big group terpenoids it, um, include gums, resins, essential oils, saponins, carotenoids, lycopene, um, and we'll also talk about relation to cholesterol, and we'll talk about um, how these, some of them have some steroid-like, um, you know, structural resemblance, let's say. Now, fortunately, within the smallest units of terpenes, we have um, some sense uh, and some clues about their size based on the sort of prefix or how they're named. So the very smallest type uh, is the monoterpenes, and this still comprises a really um, wide range of, of molecules. Um, but these are these combine or contain or are as big as basically two isoprene units, um, and those can often be small, um, like six-membered rings with some additional, uh, you know, small functional groups, or they can be um, some of them are not necessarily rings, but many of them will be a six-membered ring. So these are pretty small, and uh, because they're pretty small. Um, they can travel, and because of some other physical traits, they can travel through the air 
um, really quickly and easily and can be inhaled. Um, of course, they don't have to be small molecules to be inhaled, but they can travel through the air very far um, based on their size and other traits. And when we inhale them, um, they can actually interact with the olfactory bulb in our, um, after passing, you know, through our nostrils and sinuses and have some immediate effects actually on the brain, on the nervous system or central nervous system. So that's pretty cool. Um, and it explains, um, how we have so many aromatic compounds, um, in that we sense them with our senses. Um, although some of these fit the organic chemistry definition of aromatic as well, that um, are basically used in or recognized in aromatherapy. So many small uh, aromatic or smelly compounds that have immediate but short-lived and subtle effects on our, uh, our mood, nervous system, or sort of momentary cognition, recollection, that sort of thing, and association. So, so monoterpenes are pretty, um, you know, we can almost sort of, uh, put them in that, you know, container, uh, of having some, you know, this similar trait of being so small and being associated with a lot of the really highly aromatic plants and most highly or any highly aromatic plant doesn't just make one monoterpene. It makes a really wide range or array of monoterpenes and the combination gives that plant its um, specific characteristic scent and also growing conditions and cultivar type and any number of things can um, affect the proportion of different monoterpenes that that plant is producing and releasing at any time. It's also the sort of molecule that um, it volatilizes quickly. And so, you know, if this portion of the plant is what you're interested in, you want to handle that plant with care. So, um, and some may learn that, you know, these are going to be produced more or more intact in certain environmental conditions. Like you might pick, um, you know, mid-morning on a sunny, dry day, things of that nature. Um, okay, so I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about them, but I'll also step us through first step us through the, you know, some of the main groups, just naming them and naming something about their size, and then we'll go, you know, we'll pause a little bit for most of these again. So we have iridoids. Um, these are a type of monoterpene um, with that incorporate an ester. Um, or sometimes you might hear of diterpenes and iridoids related. Um, but anyhow, we're talking about small molecules, okay? Small molecules still, but a step up from monoterpenes. Um, and you might learn of or hear of iridoids being associated with um, the bitter principle or the bitter aspect of some medicinal plants. And it's not not the cause for all bitter taste in plants, but for some, and for some that are really notably, uh, really notably extremely bitter, or that we can detect in small, small, small dilutions. We have sesquiterpenes, um, those, that, that kind of means like one and a half. Um, these contain three isoprene units, um, and so we'll see, we'll expand on the relevance there. 
Sometimes they make milky type latexes in plants and things of that nature, maybe with some nervous system effects, um, for example. We can step up a little bit in size and particular traits and look at um, triterpenes and or triterpene saponins, a special case of terpene that we'll expand on. Um, and if it's a saponin, it has affinity for both lipids and water. We have cardiac glycosides, um, a more specific type. Um, phytosterols, just to give you some terms that some will be familiar with already. Um, and carotenoids, if we go really, um, you know, if we keep going in length of the um, sort of more chain-like terpenoids, we'll get to carotenoids, um, lycopene, uh, and more. And some of those really are more associated with kind of nutritional knowledge, right? Like you have heard of these things in carrots and in tomatoes, but you might not consider them as much in um, herbal medicine, even though some herbs may contain them. Okay, so for monoterpenes, just to pause again there as we step up, um, are many components of essential oils. They're not the exclusive components of essential oils, but there's a really, uh, there's a, a very much a um, overlap or connection here. Um, and some of the plant families that really feature these include the mints, the pine family, not just pine trees, but the whole pine family, which is many of the evergreen trees, um, rutaceae, which is citrus, APAC, the carrot, parsley, and celery family, also called the umbelliferae. Those are just a few, um, uh, but a few of the notable botanical families with the most um, or with the, the greatest representation of like highly monoterpene producing plants with great diversity of monoterpenes and great maybe even sort of commercial interest in them. So we'll step up a little bit. So we have terpenes that are called iridoids, uh, associated with being the bitter principle variation of monoterpenes. And these can be, some of them detectable at, a, at dilutions of up to 1 to 50,000. That is 1 to 50,000 dilution, stimulating the release of gastrin and other GI secretions like bile. Um, plants associated with this type of constituent include gentian, Verbena, eyebright, bog bean, cleavers, devil's claw, and valerian. So gentian right off the bat, some of you will know as an extremely, a very bitter plant that is used as a digestive bitter or digestive tonic and even small amounts can produce that effect. Verbena, you may have learned the same way. Eyebright produces some anti-inflammatory types of effects. Um, might sort of enhance um, protective secretions um, of the sort of uh, throat, eyes, sinuses. We know of um, cleavers as a diuretic and mild laxative. We know of devil's claws and analgesic and digestive bitter. Um, and then valerian, although it's most often characterized as being a sleep herb, also has antispasmodic value for smooth muscles, uh, including, let's say, in the GI tract, or even including, um, including uterine smooth muscle, um, and, you know, thinking of menstrual cramps. 
um, and including the smooth muscle lining, the vasculature, the veins. So um, we think that valer, uh, valerianic acid and valerian um, partly contributes to the antispasmodic effect. So there's a little introduction to some of these um, small-ish terpenes uh, that we sometimes call iridoids. There are some different naming conventions and some differences you'll see from source to source, and that's okay. And of course, all of those plants have more than one type of constituent of interest. We're just highlighting some characteristic plants and constituents as we step through some of these groups. Okay, so sesquiterpenes is the type of terpene derived from three isoprene units, and sesqua means one and a half. Um, so it's like a half step between a monoterpene and a diterpene. So these are, um, of course, I could see, I might like to say that really all of these are involved in um, allelopathic plant interactions, uh, chemical interactions plants have with other organisms like um, fungi and, um, you know, perhaps... Uh, organisms that may be in the environment that it may want to attract or repel um, or have a symbiotic relationship with or deter or uh, keep perhaps from, you know, growing in the same soil or, uh, you know, offer some interesting benefits too, could go either way. So these can have to do with communication among species. Um as well as po probably some function as sort of plant hormones, so communication within that plant. One um, good example is camazuline of chamomile, which is um, character, uh, which is related to or, or sort of characterized as being present in yarrow, in chamomile, uh, and in wormwood. If we're talking about Artemisius absinthium, not everybody's wormwood, but some people's wormwood. Of course, wormwood is used as a common name for many, many different plants. Um, and so camazuline and these plants have uh, anti-inflammatory properties and some antipyretic use as well. Some heat and fever reducing qualities. Another example of a sesquiterpene, humulene. Um, a constituent of many essential oils. Of course, it's named after hops. Again, bitter, anti-inflammatory, often associated with being kind of cooling or antipyretic. Um, definitely bitter, uh, or we definitely associate this plant, the hops plant, with being bitter. And then we have zingiberine, uh, a carminative effect produced by zingiberine of zingiber, which is ginger. So we're seeing some kind of moving and anti-inflammatory um, effects, especially on, let's say, mucosa. Um, and yeah, couple just a little bit of a vignette of sesquiterpenes there, a small selection, but a sort of representative selection for some of the... Okay, so I mentioned plant-based expectorants or saponin-based expectorants. And I have a few plants that could be examples. So balsam type remedies, um, 
balm of Gilead, a pop, a, a sort of a, a, a Vermont, well, I learned it in Vermont, but a, a regional name for some pop, for a poplar tree, a species that produces a really resinous um, bud. Um, Grindelia is applicable here. Elecampane to an extent, whorehound, and spikenard. So if you, some will be more um, sensitive taste-wise to this, but you might, now that you know, um, the next time you taste one of these, pick up on a little bit of a soapy and slightly unagreeable flavor um, in these plants. And these are also really good expectorants. Um, largely because of, you know, the same constituents you're tasting when you taste it and say, Ugh, you're not sure of this. Okay, so we have phytosterols, phytosterols. So originally sterols were believed to be specific to animals, okay? But we have um, types of phytosterols that are, um, you know, ubiquitous to higher plants as a membrane component. So their uh, sterols are very essential to plants as well. And one um, that we could maybe talk about, think about is um, Google sterols from the plant Google or Camophora, um, a resinous Indian plant, a, a tree resin. Um, and we have uh, probably one, maybe one of the most interesting things about it for sort of so-called modern medicine or modern illnesses is a potential blood cholesterol uh, and triglyceride effect via stimulation perhaps of thyroid function or perhaps simply of uh, affecting um, cholesterol absor absorption, metabolism, um, and production in the body. So that's pretty interesting. I think of when I say camophora, like camophora mul mul, which is also myrrh. Okay. You might, if you get into the research or you're really like getting into the, um, you know, some of the studies um, or the somewhat um, maybe more nutritional angles, you might know of B cytosterol which occurs really widely in plants, and it's also famously in wheat germ. Um, and this is, you know, we think responsible for some of the um, anti-hyperlipoproteinemic effects, or let's say, you know, has a favorable effect on blood lipids, perhaps slightly lowering if blood lipids are elevated or skewed. We have stigma sterile in many higher plants, especially soybeans and other legumes, um, said to be slightly hormonal modulating. We have withanolide D, uh, or just withanolides in the leaves of withania, uh, withania somnifera, that is, so ashwagandha. And um, this, you know, this constituent type might contribute a lot of types of actions, but some some of the studies suggest antibiotic and anti-tumor. Okay, so we have many names that are sounding like they have similar meaning and have slight variation in structure and meaning from each other. Um, so we'll step through and now we have isoflavonoids. 
And so these are just a little bit different structurally than the uh, two groups we've mentioned prior. They still have a some similarity to, um, slight kind of similarity to cholesterol. Um, and they're, you know, they're flavonoids, but we could also sort of characterize them. They're sort of a specific step up in uh, terpenoids as well because of the, uh, the pattern of, you know, conjugated bonds or isoprene units. Um, so they could really be categorized in a few different, a couple different groups. But how do we think of them as in a container here? We could think of them um, as especially or mostly occurring in one subfamily of Fabaceae or P and bean family. The Faboidae uh, fab, <laughs> subfamily. Um, and so this has, this, this includes soybeans, clover, um, alfalfa, and chickpeas. And so these are said to have mildly estrogen modulating properties. Um, this talk will end up being long no matter what. So I think I'm going to leave it at that for now. But I really want to emphasize the modulating properties and not increasing properties. Okay, because it depends on um, the environment in the body, how much estrogen is already being expressed at the moment. But generally, these exert less of an effect on the receptors than endogenous estrogen and exert way less of an effect. So um, they can be helpful if estrogen is in decline. Um, they can be mildly helpful, but also if there's excess circulating estrogen, which would be close to the opposite of that, they may occupy some estrogen receptors temporarily um, exert less of effect and keep endogenous estrogen from being active there, therefore sort of mitigating or lowering the effect of that excess um, endogenous estrogen. And some suggest that they may kind of help to protect against effects from xenoestrogens, okay? So encourage you to, um, if you're skeptical, encourage you to look at a wide range of research on this. Uh, and maybe I'll go deeper into it because this is something that I spent a really, well, relative to the time I had <laughs> very early in my herbal learning and nutrition courses, um, spent a little time on this one. Okay, so cardiac glycosides. Um, this is interesting, but not for amateurs. These are um, really characterized with, you know, many people might think of digitalis or digoxin or convalaria, magus, lily of the valley, um, two plants with, you know, notable cardiac glycosides, um, and digitalis has in a big way been innovated into, or yeah, innovated into conventional medicine. Um, these are, you know, could also be called a type of steroidal saponins, but with a twist. They, the twist is their functionality in that they have a, an immediate and dramatic effect on the cardiac muscle especially those constituents from um, digitalis, which is foxglove. And, and still um, significantly so, but a bit less from Lily of the Valley. Both are low-dose botanicals. You wouldn't take foxglove. Um, some real experts might work with a little bit of Lily of the Valley, but it also can be very poisonous. Either of them are very harmful immediately. 
Um, the old uses, though, congestive heart failure and, uh, in some cases, uh, cardiac arrhythmia. But again, these are heroic, low-dose botanicals, more likely to cause real trouble than to be curative um, when used in whole plant form. Um, and there was a much more uh, acute, nuanced, specific knowledge of use um, at a time before we had uh, sort of drug analogs of these that could be, uh, you know, very much more controlled in dose and delivery. Okay, so take a break if you like, um, because the next I have is plant exudates. Exudates. So we're moving into something a little bit different, although we're still in this, we're still in this terpenoid theme. So plant exudates are a uh, a, a mix or a blend of constituents, balms, guns, olea resins, uh, resins, semi-solid mixtures vary by climate, season, and other factors. Um, we can see them actually exuding or weeping from um, usually trees um, in sort of a sappy type of form. It's not technically a sap, but that's what we would call it. Um, that's what you might call it unless you have the additional terminology here. Um, and so this can be a combination of lignans, resins, acids, resin alcohols, esters, and other constituent types. And so even though this, um, these are a combination of a lot of different types of constituents, you know, many beginning texts, teachers, and myself will include um, or will associate terpenes or terpenoids with, um, you know, the resinous aspect of plants. And one type of sort of resinous looking um, or latex looking or like constituent you might see expressed from some plants are sesquiterpene lactones. And a little hint to help you remember where those belong, it's that sesquiterpene part. So these are among the terpenes. So um, a lot of aster or these could be associated with some aster family plants. Um, but not exclusively so. Um, so we see these in feverfew, for example. We see these in burdock. Um, and then separately also yarrow um, and wormwood. have to think about which family wormwood belongs in. But those are a few. But especially we might think of these um, with aster family plants. Plants like wild lettuce, that sort of thing. So these can have antibacterial, antifungal, anti-worm, um, um, anti-hyperlipidemic, so uh, blood lipid perhaps slightly lowering effects. Some are cardiovascular tonics or even um, a little bit nervous system uh, nervines or nervous system relaxants. Some species will have, you know, a dozen or dozens of these. Um, for example, Artemisia. Uh, the plants in the Artemisia genus. Um, and Helenanine of Inula Helenium or Elecampane is one that probably helps to produce some of the expectorant effect. And many people sort of experience Elecampane as perhaps antimicrobial as well, though I'd say it certainly has a nice gentle but effective expectorant effect um, for the respiratory system. So some, you know, going back to the, you know, this aster family theme or staying on this aster family theme, 
Think of some of the Aster family plants that have a milky, sappy, latex-like quality, um, often with a bitter taste and anti-inflammatory action, or you could even say bitter action as far as how it affects the digestive system. So, um, yes, we would count artemisias there, um, or many of the types of wormwood. We can count chamomile there, chicory, dandelion, um, wild lettuce, uh, elecampane as mentioned, uh, and even artichoke leaf. And in fact, yarrow belongs in this family too, so almost all of our examples there. If you listen to or happen to go back to the phenolics or polyphenols talk, part one, um, we mentioned or I mentioned, um, you know, some phenolic resins being in propolis, contributing to propolis, contributing to um, the resin and the balm of Gilead that poplar bud makes. Um, but these plants also have uh, terpene or terpenoid based resins as well. So remember, those are always a combination of types of constituents. And we could also count um, myrrh as a good example of this, uh, comophora. So, you know, we mentioned that one in relation to, I believe, some of the triterpene type constituents um, or some of the smaller terpene type constituents, but we can also count it as a plant, um, you know, producing uh, terpenes that contribute to these resin mixtures of constituents that are sticky, that are antiseptic or antimicrobial. Um, often protectant if used on the surface and perhaps cholesterol lowering when ingested, some of them. Some additional plants uh, for resinous qualities that may, um, in, you know, include uh, sesquiterpenes or other terpenes that are going to be sticky and contributing some of these uh, antimicrobial and expectorant actions, for example, yerba santa and um, even cinnamomum, uh, cinnamomum camphora, camphor, um, dragon's blood, uh, the resin exuded from a particular tree, um, grandelia, definitely, um, and ternera diffusa, uh, damiana, which is often more associated with having a nervine or nervous system calming quality and having some digestive benefits, but also the plant, when you handle it, um, is a bit sticky and also certainly has a bit of a resinous scent and flavor to it. You might also hear of diterpenes in these plants, like grindelic acid. Um, you might hear um, of diterpenes, you know, being uh, attributed some of the actions we've been talking about, you know, the sticky quality the antiseptic quality, the expectorant quality, um, aromatic yes, uh, or scented yes, but not quite as volatile and aromatic as the monoterpenes. Um, and so even in just small steps up in these groups of constituents, we have a lot of diversity of constituents and plants. Okay, so let's take a quick pause. And the next group up, if we go in order, is those triterpenes. So we have talked about some types of triterpenes, but let's talk about some maybe additional plants that contain them and some additional context here. So um, in reishi mushrooms, these contribute uh, 
contribute to nearly all the actions of interest like anti-inflammatory, immune modulating, and anti-cancer. In black cohosh, some of the triterpenes or some triterpenes contribute perhaps slight hormonal modulating and anti-inflammatory actions. Um, you know, we know of triterpene saponins. Um, you might not think of, the gins of ginseng as a saponin plant or expectorant plant, but in, you know, folk use when ginseng was a bit more abundant, um, you know, it was counted as an expectorant. We have, um, you know, remembering that there's some structural resemblance to cholesterol for many of these, and that, you know, they're aliphatic, they have an affinity for water and lipids, um, you know, can slightly increase absorption, can have some slight, really subtle effects on hormonal, um, hormonal receptors or systems, um, and that they can sort of sit on or with or be close to or sort of gather close to um, the surface of certain membranes having some physical qualities much like the molecules that make up uh, membranes in our body. So a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic area. Some will even be associated with um, helping to kind of modulate the um, fluctuation of cortisol, which has cortisol also has a resemblance to cholesterol and a relation there. So that's one um, sort of rationale for how ginseng and just ginsenicides um, and some other constituents of adaptogenic plants like astragalicides, if you count that as an adaptogen, eleutherocides from what many call what many recognize as Siberian ginseng, um, and glycerizin from licorice have some of these, you know, perhaps cortisol modulating effects. When we talk about botanical steroids, that can have a variety of meanings. Um, you know, some structural, perhaps similarity to some human steroids, although we know plants make many phytosterols that are uh, ubiquitous across uh, the plant kingdom or practically so. Um, we could talk about a structure, you know, with approximately 27 carbons with a particular format and many variations. We can think of these especially occurring in um, nuts, vegetable oils, like olives, certain fruits like saw palmetto. Um, we could think, if we're looking at some of the nutritional texts, of thinking of um, recognizing terms like phytosterols and beta-cytosterol, again, mimicking sort of cholesterol's role in cell membranes and serving as hormonal growth regulators in plants. And we have, um, you know, therapeutic uses uh, in herbs, some of the herbs that have a strong affinity for their reproductive system, and it's not just sort of estrogen modulating. We see these in um, pygeum and horny goatweed and saw palmetto, licorice, sarsaparilla, and the ginseng. So we see them, uh, we see these represented across all sorts of what some call sort of generative or reproductive hormone tonics. But we can also look at their effects on cholesterol, uh, perhaps lowering LDL cholesterol and, um, you know, perhaps having some sort of longer term health protective benefits, whether we're looking at blood lipids, hormonal balance, um, or other kind of effects.
And then just to kind of take this um, sort of all the way to a finish, uh, if you kept, if you were looking at sort of chains of uh, terpenoids and lengths, if you kept going, you would um, sort of graduate to or reach carotenoids and lycopene and other really long carbon chains that are a little bit more nutritionally associated. Um, the in the class of tet, uh, tetraterpenoids, which have 40 carbons or more, they're lipid soluble, they're very lipid-like in quality, and um, you think of perhaps tomatoes, carrots, that sort of thing, and sort of long-term health protective effects against things like mutagenesis, you know, some highly antioxidant um, nutritional compounds perhaps reduced with decreased risk of cancer and cardiovascular diseases. Um, and we see correlation with sort of serum or tissue levels and better health outcomes. Um, so that's our sort of bigger example of a, terp a terpene, one that's in a longer chain um, and one that some will learn from nutrition, um, but that isn't as you know, isn't attributed to as many sort of herbal actions unless we're looking at it in a nutritional and s subtle, slow, health protective um, effect kind of angle. You'll find abundant information about carotenoids, lycopene, uh, and the like uh, in nutritional research and information. Okay, so that actually closes out terpenoids or terpenes and terpenoids. Um, the next one I will do is uh, polysaccharides, and then we might just have one more um, that is, you know, a fourth that is perhaps a little bit more of the sort of miscellaneous or, you know, combination of some foundational and some advanced um, or more unique types of constituents. So I'm Heather Irvine. Um, you may have found this through SoundWise about medicinal plants, or you may have found it through another avenue. But I put most of my little audio lessons on my publisher page on the SoundWise app, which is SoundWise about medicinal plants. Okay, thanks herbalists.